Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is uh, very, very excited, so I'll pass you off to her. Who's not excited about pirates? Uh, All excited. Yeah, we have Jamie Goodall with us today. She joined us down the pub a few weeks ago, but she's a staff historian at the US Army Center of Military History in Washington. Uh, But her speciality at the moment is pirates, and she's just done a, a brilliant new book on it called Pirates and Patriots of the Chesapeake Bay. Jamie, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. You're in that area, aren't you? I am, I am. I'm in Maryland. Yeah, so it is, uh, you were saying it's proper muggy and hot there at the moment. Yes, it's miserable. Oh, how are you doing with lockdown? How bored are you? Um, pretty bored. I've been teleworking for the last, I don't know, I would say 80-something days. So mm. I haven't left my house very much except to maybe go to the grocery store. So. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, it's getting pretty horrific now. We just want our lives back, don't we? But you did just get another, I'm sure I saw on Twitter you've got another book deal, haven't you? I do, I do. I'm going to be writing about pirates in the mid-Atlantic, so I'll be focusing on New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania sort of area. Oh, brilliant, because that leads me on to our first question. It's not all about the Caribbean, is it? So set the scene for us around Chesapeake Bay. All right, yeah, so the Chesapeake Bay region encompasses the states of Maryland and Virginia. So the bay itself extends about 200 miles from Haver de Grace, Maryland in the north to Virginia Beach, Virginia in the south. And piracy really affected a number of locations, sort of big and small throughout the whole of the Chesapeake. So in the book, I looked at uh, places in Maryland like Palmer's Island, Annapolis, Baltimore, um, Fells Point. And then in Virginia, I looked at places like Richmond, Williamsburg, Blackbeard's Point, and Chincoteague. So that's sort of the general region physically uh, where these pirates were operating. Well, can you give us a definition of, an, of a pirate? Because it's not not as easy as you might think is it oh it's very difficult actually um depending on who you were and which side of a conflict you found yourself on pirates were called a lot of different things uh so they were called corsairs buccaneers uh sometimes even privateers so i'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about the difference between the two in just a minute but pirates mainly operated on the open seas although they were known to make use of the rivers and land to support their operations and really they were responsible for disrupting commercial activity uh, on these waterways and they were known to steal and then sell those commodities in order to make a profit. Um, And who is it straightforward as to who their victims are or does that vary hugely as well? Uh, It varies quite a lot um, because sometimes merchants were actually dealing with pirates and they were supporting them. But on the other hand, of course, there were merchants who were being 
uh, devastated by the pirates. Um, also, the same goes for your average uh, inhabitant, uh, either in the Chesapeake or throughout the Caribbean, where uh, for some of them, they might be benefiting from the goods and services brought to the islands by pirates. But then on the other hand, they, they might be dealing with the, the negative effects, uh, embargoes that might be put into place as a result of piratical activity. Um, and the same with the governments. Sometimes the governments are supporting the pirates and sometimes they're not. So uh, the Spanish, of course, when we talk about pirates broadly, Span the Spanish are the ones who suffered the most at the hands of the pirates. Uh, but the English government, the French yeah, government. Hurrah for Francis Drake. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, so they're all dealing with the pirates in different ways. So your book starts in the 17th century when America is a collection of colonies. What kind of characters do we see? Well, we see all kinds of characters from uh, the, the not so famous like Joseph Wheland to the very famous like Blackbeard. Um, but there are countless rumors about pirates and buried treasure from Charleston to Baltimore and beyond. And while a lot of these stories are probably exaggerated and more legend than fact, um, some of these characters sort of loom large in imagination. One of my favorite stories is in 1746, uh, five men were apprehended on the Chincoteague, and they claimed to be crew members of a Spanish privateer, Don Pedro, but uh, officials believed that they were actually escaped slaves, uh, enslaved men from Pennsylvania. And before they were arrested, uh, they had entered Maryland's uh, Cinepunxet Inlet on a rowboat. So, pirates in a rowboat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, they only had a sheep and a broken scythe with them. Um, but that was enough to uh, kill a crew member on a sloop that they decided to seize. Uh, and they used that new sloop instead of their rowboat uh, to supposedly plunder their way south, increasing their arms and taking hostages and stealing supplies along the way. Um, so I, I just find that sort of fascinating where it's not just white men who are participating in, in acts of piracy. Uh, formerly enslaved men also were very uh, important to the story. Yeah, I'm kind of like more power to them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like life has crapped on them pretty hard. If they found a way to, to make the white man pay by stealing his stuff, I'm okay with that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You've already mentioned Blackbeard. Is he more North Carolina or does he come up to this area? Uh, he primarily operated out of the Carolinas, but he did come into the Chesapeake from time to time. Um, just because the Chesapeake Bay was such an easy location, its accessibility was uh, something that made it convenient as a space for importing and exporting goods and people across the Atlantic. So uh, the Chesapeake was a good place for him to offload some of his goods and, and hide when he needed to from the uh, officials. So tell us about him. Why is he the pirate daddy? Uh, I think that he gets the, the rap for being sort of the, the most badass pirate, primarily because of the rumors about his, um, his brutality. Although we, we don't really have any evidence to support the fact that he was so reportedly brutal. Um, but Rumors abound that he would cut people's limbs off. He would gouge out eyes. Um, of course, the most famous um, description of Blackbeard comes from uh, Captain Charles Johnson's uh, a, a History of Pirates, a general history of pirates, where he describes Blackbeard as having this like long, 
uh, thick black hair and a big thick black beard, which uh, he had partially braided up with saltpeter wicks inside that he would light on fire so his beard would be smoking and crackling. Um, so those sorts of rumors helped him a most fearsome pirate, and I think that's one of the reasons he became so famous. Do you think it's PR, or was he that badass? Um, I think a lot of it was PR. Um, he... Because he was known to show some mercy. My favorite story about Blackbeard is the fact that uh, there comes a point where his crew members are so sick and he needs medicine because they can't really go on. And so while they're off the coast of South Carolina, he apprehends a ship, uh, a small boat that had some of the most prominent men from uh, South Carolina on it. And he held them hostage and basically told the governor, uh, send me medication and, you know, medical supplies, or I'm going to kill these guys. And fortunately for, for the men, uh, the governor does send the requested supplies, and, and Blackbeard lets them go. But he does not let them go completely unscathed. He sends them back to shore naked. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. He's a benevolent pirate. He's just like daddy pirate looking after his baby pirates. Yeah. <laughs> I love him. I think he's great. So in the 18th century, um, sorry, let me start again. Is the 18th century the golden age of the pirate? Um, yeah, I would say the 18th century. Really, the golden age was a period that spread from the 1650s to the 1730s. So the height of the golden age of piracy would have been um, the, the mid seven, or early to mid-1700s, yeah. So when ships get faster and stuff um, and people start getting wise to pirates as a result of that activity, does it get harder to be a pirate then in the 18th century? I think it does. I think it does. Although uh, they, they had ways of being crafty in order to uh, adapt to these new circumstances. So, for example, false flags were a very popular ruse from pirates where they would raise the flag of a certain... Uh, nationality that they thought was friendly to the ship that they were going to attack and that way they could get close enough to that ship uh, that it wouldn't necessarily be able to get away even if it was faster because they were so close to it. Um, as we move on we get more into the realms of privateer in your book. Um, what is the difference between a privateer and a pirate? So technically, there's only two things really that separate a pirate and a privateer, and that's perspective and a letter of mark. So in times of conflict, government officials permitted people to arm their personal vessels and attack enemy ships in order to disrupt trade. So both pirates and privateers had one main job, and that was to attack and plunder ships. So in essence, a letter of mark merely gave piracy the facade of legitimacy, and privateering, the privateers were more often than not viewed as honorable and uh, patriotic men who were augmenting naval forces where piracy was widely considered a scourge. Um, but in reality, the lines aren't nearly as sharply defined and privateers often strayed from their intended path. So really privateers were little more than legally sanctioned pirates. Um, their actions are clearly piratical under the law, uh, but they go purposefully unpunished. Privateers go hand in hand with war, don't they? Talk to us about some of the characters that fall in with the American Revolution and the Civil War. So with the American Revolution, uh, one of the stories from the book is about a man named John Greenwood, who in summer of 1781 was a second mate to a privateer with a letter of mark from Boston. 
Um, so John Greenwood and his captain were sailing in and around Baltimore, but Greenwood found his captain to be a complete loser. Uh, according, to <laughs> his, uh, according to his depositions, uh, he found his captain to be afraid of his own shadow. So rather than serve a coward, he decided to venture off on his own. And uh, fortunately for him, he had seized enough money from the voyages that they had uh, completed to um, purchase a small 40-ton schooner with the purpose of carrying freight throughout the Chesapeake. Um, they had some minor difficulties starting out, uh, but ultimately uh, Greenwood took a freight of rigging down the Pionkatank River around the time that Cornwallis seized Yorktown. And uh, this sort of put Greenwood in the British sights. Um, so the crew, there's a period where things are not going very well for the crew. The wind and tide are unfavorable. So the crew decides to get obnoxiously drunk because they have no, there's no real prospects for them uh, with so, much so many British ships about uh, protecting the trade. And Greenwood decides to uh, send the men to sleep in the cabin while he kept watch on the vessel. And they head out into the bay. Um, Greenwood starts to fall asleep, but there are two British galleys lying in wait just out of sight. And uh, all of a sudden, Greenwood finds that there's a lot of noise and swords and cutlasses. And at first he assumed that the crew being drunk were just playing around and, and fighting each other. Um, so he, he shouted to them to shut the hell up. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the hatchway opens and he struck several times with the pommel of a sword. And he finds that there's this English flag flying. And uh, he assumes that he's been uh, seized by the British. Uh, but he's actually seized by a man named Joseph Whelan Jr., who uh, is pretty much a pirate. He claims he has a commission from the British to seize any vessels in the bay, um, but really he's a pirate. So now you've got a privateer and a pirate who are sort of competing, and uh, it really sort of demonstrates what's happening in the bay during the American Revolution, where you have... Mm privateers on the American side, you have loyalist privateers who are Americans who are fighting on the side of the British. Um, the British, of course, have the, the most prominent naval force in, in the world, so the Americans are really relying on, on private vessels to help augment their very uh, baby navy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what about the Civil War? How has privateering progressed by the time we get there? Uh, so by the time we get there, privateers are primarily on the Confederate side uh, because the United States has formed an official Navy. Uh, so they have a naval force that they can utilize. Um, but the Confederates, they rely very heavily on private vessels. Um, so there's uh, one man, John Taylor Wood, who in August of 1863 led uh, a series of men on uh, some raiding boats. He was a veteran of the Battle of Hampton Roads. He was one of the defenders of Drury's Bluff on the James River. And he happened to be the nephew of Confederate President Davis. 
So he served an important role as the naval aide to uh, Confederate President Davis. Uh, his exploits earned him dual ranks of captain in the Confederate States Navy and colonel in the cavalry. Um, but he also uh, decides to seek a commission to privateer his way uh, throughout the bay, uh, attacking the Potomac flotilla. Uh, and so really what we see is that the Confederacy views these men as privateers. They're using them, uh, in that capacity. But according to the United States, uh, they are pirates and President Lincoln issues a statement saying that any privateers who are captured in the course of war will be considered pirates and they'll be hanged for piracy. Um, well, then pretty soon after the Civil War in your book, you move on to something I had never heard of. Uh, what are the Oyster Wars? And um, they go on for ages. Um, so start with what they started over. Okay, so uh, residents of the Chesapeake were really dependent on the bay. And it was really oysters that drew them to the water, which gave them the nickname Oyster Catchers from the merchants mm. of Baltimore. Uh, so oyster fishing was really good business, uh, so much so that fishermen from as far away as New England would flock to the bay, which led to an overabundance of competition on the bay. So there are two different types of oyster pirates, if you will. Um, on the one hand, you had Maryland and Virginia who wanted to stop the threat of outside competition in the 1830s. Uh, so they passed a series of laws limiting oyster harvesting, harvesting to state residents only. So some say that these laws are the start of the so-called oyster wars because anyone who violated these oyster laws became known in the press and by the public as oyster pirates. Mm -hmm. um, so outside competitors, those from New England, the Mid-Atlantic, those became known as oyster pirates. Uh, on the other side, you have two different types of oyster catching. You have tonging and dredging. So those who used the tonging method were preferred because they worked in shallower waters, their boats generally carried only a couple of men. Uh, so one of the men would use long tongs to gather the oysters, one would cull them. And it wasn't very disruptive because you could only capture so many oysters at a time yeah. by that method. So they weren't as disruptive. So dredgers became known as oyster pirates as well because Maryland officials in particular uh, began to outlaw dredging which was considered harmful to the bay because dredgers used much larger boats. They worked in deeper waters where they could harvest more oysters in these basket-like scoops that they dragged over the oyster beds. Mm. And dredging itself often left so few oysters that they could not naturally reproduce fast enough. So now not only do you have the issue of overcompetition with out-of-state oyster catchers, but you also have dredgers that are destroying the oyster beds and not allowing them to reproduce naturally. So those two issues are really what spawn the so-called oyster wars. This goes on for nigh on a century. How did the oyster wars evolve? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So primarily the main oyster wars occur in the 1880s. You have the first oyster war uh, in 1882-1883 when Governor Cameron of Virginia uh, decides to go after the lawless oyster dredgers of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, that first oyster war was a success for the governor. He was able to capture a number of oyster pirates uh, they were found guilty and convicted, uh, but then he used his powers of the governorship to offer clemency to a lot of them because their families came pleading, promised they'll never do it again sort of thing. Um, but of course, they go back to oyster pirating. So a second oyster war begins in February of 1883. Um Governor Cameron prepares for a second raid, much like he did for the first, but he's not as successful this time. Um, and there's a brief lull. Um, so around the early 1880s, 1883, 1884, watermen were hauling 15 million bushels of oysters out of the Chesapeake Bay. But by 1889, that number had declined by over a third to less than 10 million bushels. Uh, so this is where we get the third oyster war um, because there are issues. You have improvements in boats and oyster processing mm -hmm. and increased demand for oysters. Um, and oyster catchers on the bay were becoming far too numerous. So in Maryland, for example, profits from oysters were becoming so thin that the oyster catchers were having difficulty paying for the expensive boats and equipment that oyster catching required. So they turned to taking up really young oysters that were less than three inches long in order to fill their profit gap. Yeah. And uh, this, of course, prevented the natural reproduction of oysters yet again. Um, there's also the widespread use of oyster shells in lime kilns and fertilizer plants, which meant that reseeding the beds was becoming impossible. So this is sort of the transition from early on, it's dealing with out of town oyster catchers but as time progresses, they're even going after their own oyster catchers because of these issues. This goes uh, all the way to 1959, doesn't it? So what's the conclusion to it all and what's happening by then? Right. So the oyster wars uh, in the late 1880s, the Maryland Oyster Navy was placed under new leadership. Um, a flotilla of steamers and schooners uh, stayed on the bay for 150 days a year. Um, so they really did lessen the impact of the oyster pirates, but uh, despite the fact that the Maryland Oyster Navy really became a force to be reckoned with by 1900, you still had various skirmishes throughout the 1900s. Um, of course, there were lulls during periods of wartime, so during World War I, World War II. Um, you don't have as many oyster catchers because most of those individuals are involved in the war effort in some way. Um, but the oyster wars really took that final deadly turn in April of 1959. So there's this man named Berkeley Muse, who was a well-respected community leader in Colonial Beach. 
Uh, he did everything from speculating in real estate to farming, and sometimes he tongued oysters with friends. So on April 7th, uh, the night of April 7th, Muse was enjoying his evening when a friend of his, Harvey King, invited Muse to join him to dredge for oysters later that night. Uh, some reports say that the men had been drinking, who knows, right? Uh, but King reportedly said, I don't give a damn about the police. And indeed, he did not. <laughs> uh, so Muse joined King and another man to go dredging around midnight. But unfortunately for them, the chief inspector of the Tidewater Fisheries Commission, Howard Shenton, had organized a stakeout on the river after receiving ports of illegal dredging. So he sent a boat upstream uh, near the mouth of the Monroe Bay to sort of keep an eye out for illegal dredgers. Uh, King, Muse, and their friend had harvested maybe seven bushels of oysters by 4.30 in the morning. Uh, but then by that point, the mist began to clear, the sun begins to rise, and they catch sight of these police vessels coming after them. So they make a beeline towards the, the shore. Um, when they were just 400 feet from the beach at Reno Pier, Shenton ordered his men to open fire. The Oyster Navy officers were supposed to fire warning shots, but... Uh, they fired over half a dozen <laughs> warning shots. Uh, <laughs> they're not really warning shots at that point, right? Yeah. They're uh, like, please stop, please. Yeah. So the, the police vessel ch uh, chased the oyster pirates uh, up to a point. Um, so King attempts to maneuver out of the way, but basically the, the police vessel continues firing at the men uh, and then, of course, Berkeley Muse reportedly shouts that he's been hit, and he collapses dead on the culling board of the boat, and King takes a bullet to the leg, while Muse had been shot directly in the chest. So this was a huge problem for the Maryland Oyster Navy. Um, Muse's death hit the community pretty hard, and as news spread that Muse had basically died in a blaze of gunfire, the citizens of Colonial Beach demanded justice, um, particularly because Muse and King had been unarmed and the barrage of bullets that entered the boat went beyond the scope of warning shots. Um, and so the citizens, of course, the residents were outraged. Uh, the Maryland Oyster Navy officers were warned to stay away from the Virginia shore. The Virginia government was like, we want nothing to do with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and oyster catchers essentially believed that the Oyster Navy aimed to kill them, not just to disable their engines or to prevent them from pirating oysters. Uh, so after the 1959 killing of uh, Berkeley Muse, the commissioner of the Potomac River Fisheries disbanded the Oyster Navy uh, because he argued it was too controversial and clearly ineffective. So basically it's the death of Berkeley Muse that marked the end of the Chesapeake Bay Oyster Wars. Wow. <laughs> That is a crazy, crazy story. The Oyster Navy. I love it. I never thought I'd ever hear someone say that, Oyster Navy. No. <laughs> Let's get some of Jamie's, like, all-time favourites and, like, most funny stories and stuff. So go on, start with one. Okay, so what is um, the most unlikely pirate success story? Um, the most unlikely success story... I would say Captain Kidd sort of seemed like an unlikely success story. He started out as a privateer, and he wasn't very good at it. Uh, <laughs> um, his crew members got very upset that he refused to attack English ships because their commission was to attack French ships. 
Um, ultimately, he was having no luck capturing French ships, so he decided instead that he would go after a um, East Indian ship. And fortunately for him, the gamble paid off, and he was quite successful in capturing the Quetta merchant. Um, but given his history or his track record with privateering, that was not a foregone conclusion that he would be successful at that. So I would say he's sort of an unlikely success story. I like that one. Yeah, I'll go with that one. Um, best pirate anecdote? I think the Blackbeard sending the men naked to shore. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty good one, isn't it? Oh, and I really want to know your verdict on Jack Sparrow. Uh, terrible pirate, but highly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Which pirate ship would you want and why? I think that after... Kid steals Sequetta Merchant and names it the Adventure Galley. Like, I would really like that ship. It was an opulent ship. Uh, it was filled with treasure and, and gold and jewels and silks and spices and stuff. Um, that seems like a pretty awesome ship to have. Yeah, I like the sound of that. What, I mean, what is your favorite pirate? I mean, who? Who is it? Uh, my favorite pirate also happens to be the worst pirate on the planet. <laughs> Oh, we're gonna do, do you know what we were going to ask you to do him as well? So if you weren't down the pub with us a couple of weeks ago, we did the most incompetent leader debate and Jamie won with this guy. So uh, for those that weren't there, just give us the story again because it's brilliant. Yes. So my favorite pirate and the worst pirate on the planet is Stead Bonnet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> most pirates, of course, have experience at sea. They typically come from the lower rungs of society and they turn to piracy more often than not, out of necessity rather than choice. Enter Stead Bonnet, who becomes known as the Gentleman Pirate, and that's not necessarily a positive thing. Um, he was born to a very wealthy family. Uh, at the age of 16, he inherited his father's 400-acre plantation. He even married well and had children, so he is doing quite well for himself, uh, as far as the records show. But in the spring of 1717, he said, fuck all, and threw it all away in a raging midlife crisis. Uh, he hated his nagging wife and his stuffy lifestyle. He was bored with his uh, job. So he prepared to be a pirate captain in the absolute worst way possible. Uh, he bought a ship as opposed to stealing a ship. And he paid a crew to join him, offering them wages instead of the prey-to-pay shares of plunder model. So if you're paying people to be on your ship with you, what incentive do they have to go out pirating? They, you know, they're going to get paid either way. Um, so he knew absolutely shit about ships or sailing and spent his time in his cabin reading instead of helping the crew. Uh, at one point, he ordered his men to attack a Spanish man-of-war, uh, which led to his ship and his crew being absolutely, totally mangled. Uh, at one point, he unwillingly ceded control over his ship to Blackbeard, bringing it back to Blackbeard, um, who Blackbeard decided this man is a total idiot. It's not even worth it for me to be involved with him anymore. Uh, I can't even profit from his idiocy. He's that stupid. <laughs> Exactly. It was not worth it to Blackbeard. So once the two of them parted, most of Stead Bonnet's crew deserted him to join Blackbeard. And ultimately, Blackbeard betrays 
Bonnet and seizes any booty that Bonnet had stolen while working alongside Blackbeard. And then Bonnet attempted to receive a pardon or some clemency because of his status as a gentleman uh, in Barbados. And this didn't work out very well for him at all. Uh, he was actually tried and hanged for piracy on December 10th of 1718, which meant he pirated for less than a year before his execution. Just what a dick. I love him, but what a dick. He's really <laughs> kind of a little bit lame. Yeah, um, there's the reason that he won that debate, wasn't there? Exactly. <laughs> but just so, guys, before we actually finish, I want to know who's Alex's favourite pirate. Uh, I like him. I just love the complete ineptitude of him because he's so ridiculous. But I do have a soft spot for Blackbeard as well because I once got paid to write a load of tourism stuff for the state of North Carolina, which meant writing up this absolutely lame pirate museum um, out in the sticks in North Carolina, which I nonetheless <laughs> really want to go to. Have you been to it, Jamie? I have not. Oh, uh, we should go because it's, you know the one I mean, the Blackbeard Museum that's yes, like I've in a house it. out on the sandbanks or somewhere. And it just, I mean, the, the exhibits are basically like a load of tap, but it just sounds brilliant. And it's like roundabout where he was uh, pirating, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would love to go visit that. Yeah, I do have a soft spot for him. What about you, Alina? I don't know anything about pirates. Um, so the only one that I know is Jack Sparrow. So I'm going to go with Jack Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty endearing, isn't he? He has spurned a whole lot of interest in pirates. And he's kind of good looking. I don't care what you say. Do not judge me. I still find him good looking. No, oh, Johnny Depp is good looking. Oh, that's all yeah. right. At least you agree with me. It's weird that he doesn't age. I think he's a vampire. <laughs> Surely it's not normal for a man to look exactly the same as he did 25 years ago, but with just exactly. better hair. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on to talk to us about your book. Um, tell everybody more about it and where they can get hold of it. Uh, yeah. So it is uh, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. You can find it on Amazon at Barnes & Noble, direct from Arcadia Publishing, or most indie bookstores have been willing to order it for people. So if you have a favorite indie bookstore, I would encourage you to get it through them. Absolutely. Save the indie bookstore. Cool. Thank you so much then for coming on. We've really enjoyed this. Thank you for having me. I loved it. And you have to come back down the pub soon. Yes, please, please. <laughs> Join us tomorrow because we have for you a brilliant, brilliant history of women in the RAF. What we did was we interviewed two specialists. So we have Luciana Harrison talking about women serving in the flying services in World War One, And then we move on to an interview with Sally McGlone, who takes us all the way through to the present day, to the point where she serves in the RAF. It's brilliant. Tell your daughters, because it's something really inspirational for them to listen to. And there's so many women who put up with so much crap and did so much for our country. Uh, and I'm really proud. And I hope you will be when you hear their stories too. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 